Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, we have a special episode for you today for the Bridgeway Podcast. As many of you may know, we recently held the Convergence Conference here in Oklahoma City, where we gathered with um, hundreds of people from around the country and around the world to talk about the convergence of word and spirit. And specifically this year, we focused on the God who heals. We looked at different um, ways to talk about the gifts of healing, why God doesn't heal, um, how to pray for healing, and um, all kinds of things like that. It was a, a really great time. And so what we're going to do, uh, starting with this podcast and the next three, we're going to share with you uh, four keynote sessions from the Convergence Conference. We're going to start out with um, Sam Storms here from Bridgeway Church. We're going to hear from Michael Brown. We're going to hear from Andrew Wilson from England. And we're going to hear from Matt Chandler from the Village Church. And all of them are going to be talking about healing um, from different angles. And so we're going to start today with um, hearing from Sam Storms on why God doesn't heal sometimes. Why might God not heal? So we hope this is a very helpful and practical way for you to think through some of the hard times about why God maybe hasn't answered your prayer for healing. So we hope you enjoy this um, first of four keynote sessions from the Convergence Conference 2019. I honestly have a very deep pastoral concern when it comes to answering the question that is posed in the title to this message, why wouldn't, couldn't, doesn't God always heal the sick? The last thing that I want anyone to hear, and I mean this seriously and from the heart, is anything that might diminish your zeal for healing or silence your prayers or to lead you to think that healing isn't that important. So please do not draw any such conclusions from anything that I say. That being said, as we all know, there are some confusing, baffling, and mysterious statements in God's Word, and we have to deal honestly with them. I know there's considerable debate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some think it was his, uh, his persecutors, the Judaizers, Others think that it was some sort of physical affliction. I happen to be in that camp, but it doesn't really matter. But what's significant is that notwithstanding his sustained intercession and request that God remove it, God said, no, no. Why did Paul leave Trophimus sick at Miletus? We read that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Why did he instruct Timothy to take a little wine for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. This is Paul's spiritual son. Now, my cessationist friends, and by the way, they are my friends, would oftentimes say the reason why, for example, Paul or Trophimus or Timothy weren't healed is because God had withdrawn 
healing gifts from the church and that healing power had diminished. Well, there's not a scintilla of evidence in the New Testament that that's the case. In fact, I have explicit evidence for the very opposite. Go to the very last chapter of the book of Acts, the opening verses where Paul is on the island of Malta. He's on his way to Rome where he will be imprisoned. And the text tells us that he healed every single person on the island of Malta who had any disease. The healing power of God was still very much operative that late in the life of the early church. So don't buy into that very bogus cessationist argument. But why weren't they healed? Why aren't all of us healed? I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that, that I think perhaps um, healing will always remain a mystery to us. I don't ever think I'll ever come to the point where I have an answer for every question. I think I would be arrogant anyway. So let's talk for just a minute very honestly and openly about why God doesn't always heal in the way and in the timing and the manner that we hope and pray and wish that He would. Now if you were here the other day, you know I had 20 points in my message. I've only got 10 today. Easy, just a breeze, no problem at all. I want to talk about 10 answers. Now please listen, listen to me, I want you to understand the distinction. These are not excuses. Some people hear what I'm going to say and they'll say, oh, you're giving excuses as to why you can't heal the sick. No, I'm not. I'm giving possible biblical explanations for why it doesn't happen in the way that sometimes we wish that it would, primarily to exhort you who aren't yet healed to think about some of the things that perhaps you need to seriously consider doing or pursuing. So. I don't know that I'm going to say anything that hasn't already been said, so I can move quickly through most of these 10 points. I want to dwell a little bit more at length on the 10th one. Number one, we don't heal like Jesus because we don't feel like Jesus. Now I'm not talking about um, feeling in the sense of is he, is he healthy, is he sick, has he got us upset? No. I'm talking about the compassion of our Savior. Jesus felt compassion. I talked about this the other day with you. Countless times in the New Testament and the Gospels, by far and away the majority of statements about why Jesus healed the sick or performed any miracle was because He felt compassion for the sick. He loved them. He cared deeply for them. When they hurt, He hurt. And I'm wondering, could it be possible that the reason why we do not heal as much as we might is because we don't feel the same compassion. We look at the sick as a nuisance. We look at them as an intrusion. We're, we're, we're so self-absorbed, we don't have the same sensitivity toward their plight as our Lord Jesus Christ did. I don't believe that Jesus is any less compassionate today than He was when He walked this earth. I don't think his character has, has transmuted. I don't think he's grown calloused toward the hurting. I think he feels as much compassion for those of you who are sick today as he did for those in the first century, but I'm afraid that perhaps some of us don't. Let me just give you one quick example of, of the compassion of our Lord and the stunning character of Jesus Christ. I have preached on this passage so many times at Bridgeway Church, and I, I have to confess to you 
this makes no sense to me whatsoever. If ever there was a verse of Scripture that seems utterly out of place, I'd say it's right here. And yet there's no textual evidence that that's the case. It happened, Matthew 21, when Jesus is cleansing the temple, or more accurately, judging the temple, driving out the money changers. He has exploded in wrath. Excuse me, Andrew. Wrath. He has exploded in wrath. He's angry. This is righteous indignation. He's denouncing them. And right, I mean, right after he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers, the very next verse, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Go figure. I can't turn on a dime like that. I mean, if I'm wrathful, if I'm angry, it takes me a long time to settle down. And if you came to me in the midst of my rage, and hopefully it's righteous rage, and said, Sam, would you pray for me? Not now. I, got, I need a little time to settle down. I need to cool down. Jesus, in the midst of the expression of his anger, the blind and the lame and the sick saw or sensed something in him that made them unafraid to approach him. I mean, he's just, he's just basically been a bouncer in the temple and kicked them out on their bohinies. I'm sorry if I can say that reverently. And yet, they weren't intimidated. They recognized compassion and love and care. And they came to him right in the middle of it. And he healed them. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we've talked a lot about this. Christine talked about it yesterday considerably. Although we must be careful in giving more weight to the role of faith than does the New Testament itself, we must also be willing to acknowledge that occasionally healing does not occur because of the absence of that sort of faith that God delights to honor. Now again, both Michael and Andrew and Christine have already clarified, and I'll say it again, don't you ever say to somebody who isn't healed, oh, it's because you have a defective faith. If you only could drive doubt from your mind, you'd be healed. Now, that may be true. But we don't have a way of knowing that with any certainty. We know that sometimes Jesus healed, faith wasn't even in the picture. Did you hear Christine's message on John 5 last night? That man had been paralyzed all those many years. He didn't have any faith. He didn't have a parent there who's believing on his behalf. He didn't have any friends. This guy didn't even bother to to get the name of Jesus so he could tell people who healed him. And when he was confronted by the religious leaders, he tattled on him. That's the guy. He's, he's the one who healed me. Go after him. He's the one to blame for me carrying my mat on the Sabbath. And yet, faith plays a profound role in the ministry of Jesus. Let me just run through these texts with you real quickly. Mark 9, or Matthew 9, 22. Remember the woman again, who had had the issue of blood for those many years. Jesus said to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, you may not like that, but it's in your Bible too. It's not just mine. Or take Matthew chapter 9, verses 29 and 30. 
He touched their eyes, the blind men, and said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Their eyes were opened. Jesus answered the Canaanite woman, oh woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Mark 2, 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends of that paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Mark 9, 23, all things are possible for the one who believes. Speaking to blind Bartimaeus, Mark 10, 52, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. Luke 17, 19, speaking to a leper, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Acts 3, 16, you remember the story of the paralytic. Peter's explaining to others who couldn't account for how is this man who was paralyzed now walking and leaping with joy. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Christ has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Acts 14, 10, Paul looking intently at this man in front of him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said, stand up right on your feet, and he did. And of course, Andrew talked about it this afternoon, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. We have to reckon with these texts, folks. Now, I understand why some of you are skittish when it comes to this idea, and I am too, because I have heard some of the extreme declarations on a part of those in certain segments of the charismatic world. I share your concerns, but we cannot allow the way others have abused and misunderstood the role of faith to cause us to withdraw and, 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 and recoil and, and fail to acknowledge that sometimes healing doesn't occur because of the absence of that sort of faith that God delights to bless with healing power. You know, it's amazing. I asked the question, why did Jesus emphasize faith so much? He didn't need it. He and his father don't need it. They're not hampered, they're not hindered. They can do whatever they want. Why faith? Because it glorifies God. Faith points us away from ourselves to the Lord. Faith in essence says, I am nothing and you are everything and my confidence is in you. Faith is not a weapon that, that we use to compel God to do what we want done. Faith is an act of self-denial. It derives its power not from the strength of the one who believes, but the strength and the goodness and the greatness of the one in whom faith is placed. And I mentioned to you once before earlier, I guess it was yesterday, that it's interesting that when Jesus was asking uh, people about their faith, he typically would say, do you believe I'm able to do this for you? Yes, Lord, be it done unto you according to your faith. Now, all that being said, I need to say something about a very controversial passage, and you may not all agree with my interpretation of it, but, uh, but to be honest, we have to look at it. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. It's one of those texts that you go, I don't know how I'm gonna, I don't know how to account for this one. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, 
what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, for one thing, why would anybody in their right mind want to literally make a mountain be drawn up from the earth and thrown into the sea? There's no practical value in that. Moving mountains was proverbial in those days for the miraculous. In other words, our Lord is highlighting the fact that otherwise humanly impossible things can be accomplished when prayer is filled with faith. Now, you need to remember the context. This statement comes right after Jesus cursed the fig tree. So they're walking out of the temple and Peter pointed to it and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And I think what our Lord is saying, he said, Peter, your, your comment tells me that you're amazed by the sudden and supernatural withering of the fig tree. But if you have faith in God, all things are possible through prayer. Now, I don't believe what Jesus is saying here is clench your fist and grit your teeth and wrench your mind and contort your will and drive all doubt out. And if you do that, you'll get what you ask for. I don't believe he's saying that when doubts start to creep into your mind over some issue, that you're just, la, 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 I can't hear you. That's not faith. That's pretense. That's, that's make-believe. So what is it that he's talking about? I can't prove this. I think he has in mind what is talked about later in 1 Corinthians 12 as the spiritual gift of faith. Now, granted, spiritual gifts hadn't technically been given until the day of Pentecost, but I think that what Jesus is saying here, he's talking about a faith that is not really within our power to produce. It must be a gift of God. When God wants to do seemingly impossible things in response to our prayers, he imparts this unassailable confidence this absolute rock-solid assurance that he's going to do something right now in response to our prayers. That's what I think he's talking about. It's very, I think Paul had this in mind, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. I think Paul's talking about the spiritual gift of faith. I think it may well be that that's what James has in mind. In James chapter 5. By the way, I don't know if Andrew mentioned this. Do you know the definite article appears there in the original text? And the prayer of the faith. Maybe he's talking about that uniquely God-given capacity to believe things for which you have no basis other than the fact that God has equipped you and enabled you to have confidence that it's going to come to pass. Let me move on. A third reason why healing does not occur. Maybe because of the presence of sin for which there has been no confession or repentance. Now again, no, don't draw the conclusion, oh, if I'm not healed, it's because I'm immersed in sin. That's not what I'm saying. But in some cases, unrepentance can hinder healing. Why do you think James said in chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed? Oftentimes we discover that it's, it's lingering bitterness toward a person, it's resentment. Many, many times it's unforgiveness that just eats away at your soul. And at that, that is, it's a hindrance to receiving the fullness of, of the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just related to that, if I may quickly point out, Andrew talked about this. I've been intrigued lately by James 5, 16, but by a phrase that we typically ignore. 
It's when James says at the end, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, there are all sorts of translational difficulties here, but he's basically saying when a righteous person prays, great power is unleashed. Prayer for the sick is powerful in what it is able to do. But the thing I've been dwelling on is what does he talk, what does he mean when he says a righteous person? Who's he talking about? All of you who put your faith in Jesus are righteous in the sense that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think he's saying that when a believing person prays, anybody who's trusted in Jesus, I think he's actually talking about practical righteousness. He doesn't say when a perfect person prays, he says when a a person, and read this one in the context of James. Think of all the commandments, the ethical principles, the warnings about the use of our mouth, our patience, our pride, all these issues that he's addressed and he's called us to obedience and holiness. And I think he's saying when somebody by God's grace is striving to live that kind of life, their prayers carry weight with God. Now, I don't want you to take that as if I'm suggesting that Somehow we put God in our debt and we bind him or obligate him by our holiness. That's not what James is saying. But he, I think, is saying if you choose to live unrighteously, you shouldn't expect God to answer your prayers. Now, he might because he's good and gracious, but we need to be careful that we do not become presumptuous. Number four, Christine preached my message last night. Healing may not happen because the sick don't want it to happen. I've been very close to blaspheming at times. I just wanted to say to Jesus, what a dumb question to ask a guy who's been paralyzed for all these years. Well, Jesus knows better than I do. It wasn't dumb at all. But as Christine pointed out, there are a lot of sick people who've become accustomed to their illness. In fact, their very identity is wrapped up in it. They enjoy the dependence that it has created. They like the special attention that comes to them because of it. They say, you know, the only reason anybody takes note of me in the the life of the church shows me kindness and compassion is because of my affliction. They fear losing the love of those individuals. Remaining sick to their way of thinking is a small price to pay to retain the kindness and the involvement of other people in their lives. Sometimes they just don't want to be healed. Fifth reason, very simply, James 4.2. We must consider the principle where we are told that you do not have because you do not ask. You might say, well, I've asked, Sam. Well, really? How often? How passionately? How fervently? For seasoned, for, for sustained seasons of time combined with fasting. The principle is we have to continue to knock, continue to seek, continue to ask and endure and persevere in prayer. Number six, Michael just preached my message. I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking, he's making this real easy on me. Some are not healed because the demonic cause of the affliction has not been addressed. Again, I echo what he said. Don't you dare conclude from this that if you're not healed, it's because you have a demon. Can it be the case that your affliction is demonically caused in some capacity? Yes. I, I want to direct your attention again. Michael mentioned it several times, Acts 10, 37, and 38. 
Jesus talking to Cornelius said, you, you, you know, Cornelius, what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And as I said yesterday, how utterly superfluous if Jesus did all that he did in the power of his own divine nature. Was he divine? Yes. But it wasn't by virtue of that divine power that he did the good. It was by virtue of the Holy Spirit with whom he'd been anointed. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He doesn't say he went about driving out those who were demonized, although he did. There are other texts which assert that. But as Michael said, he healed all who were oppressed by the devil. Number seven. This one's a little slippery. I don't don't even know exactly how to articulate it. But we have to consider the mystery of divine providence. As I've studied church history, it just seems as if there are certain times and seasons in the purposes of God during which his healing power may for a time be withdrawn or at least diminished. You say, why would God do that? Well, I don't know the mind of God, but it may be to discipline a wayward and disobedient church. It may be a wake-up call. It may be God saying, I'm tired of you taking me for granted with a spirit of entitlement. How desperate for me are you? It may be to wean us off excessive dependence on the physical comforts of this life, to recognize that if we have him, we have all we need. I don't know, but I just see in church history seasons in which the power of God is either more or less manifest. Number eight, this is another one hard to articulate. A reason why healing doesn't always happen when and how we might prefer is because of what may be described as the inevitable process of physical deterioration and ultimate physical death. If Jesus doesn't come back first, every single one of us in this auditorium are going to die. You're no exception. I don't don't expect a private rapture. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He talks about our outer self is wasting away. But the good news is, simultaneously, our inner selves are being renewed and transformed into the glory of God. I think this outer self wasting away is his way of saying that while we're on this earth, we do not live invulnerable to disease. As Andrew said, we will when we get that glorified body in the new creation. But right now we're subject to disease and decay and deterioration. We just flat run out of gas, folks. Cells die, bodily organs gradually cease to function. Our reflexes aren't as quick as they used to be. And that progressively happens the older we get. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 23, we groan as we await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, let me pause right here. Just gave you eight possible explanations. Now, let's just assume for the sake of argument that the problem isn't the absence of faith. The problem isn't the presence of a demon. All sin is confessed and repented of. That none of the reasons that I've just given you obtain, just for the sake of argument. Here's a ninth reason, and this one's going to be a little more controversial. Some of you may not like this. You may disagree with me. That's okay. This is a long one, and I want to read it carefully. Oftentimes, 
There are dimensions of spiritual growth in us, as well as moral development and increase in the knowledge of God, that He desires more than our physical health. Now, let me pause right there. That doesn't mean He is indifferent toward our physical health. As Andrew said, we're not Gnostics. God created physicality. He created our bodies. He loves our bodies. You're going to live in a body, a physical body for eternity. It's just not going to have any of the frailties that you now experience. But there are times when there are dimensions of spiritual growth and moral development in us that He desires more than our physical health. Now, here's the key. Experiences that in His wisdom God has determined can only be attained by means of or in the midst of or in response to less than perfect health. In other words, healing the sick is a good thing and we should never cease to pray for it, but often there is a better thing that can only be attained by means of physical weakness. Now, I know that that might kind of run counter to, to the way you've been thinking about this particular issue, but let me just personalize this by utilizing a verse that you all know from heart and you all believe, Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love Him and are called to us according to His purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God mysteriously, sovereignly, secretly, through all variety of means and manner, sovereignly orchestrates everything that comes into your life ultimately to serve your good and His glory. I hope you believe that. If you don't, I pity you. I don't know how you could face life without the glorious truth of Romans 8:28. So what I'm suggesting is this. All other things being equal, as I said, you can't point to some other explanation or cause for why healing hasn't happened. If I'm not healed, I have to believe it's because God values something in me greater than my physical comfort and health, that He in His infinite wisdom, mysterious though it be, knows can only be attained by means of my physical affliction and the lessons of submission and dependency and trust in God that I learned from it. Now, I, I just, I wish we had time to just kind of let that settle into your soul. I, I, I would just ask you, if it's not registering now, just simply take Romans 8, 28 and think about the implications of it and how that might account for why, at least at this point, you haven't been healed, but certainly you still may be. I, and I go back to Paul's thorn in the flesh. Three times, I don't think it was just three separate prayers. I think Paul means three sustained seasons of intercession, crying out to the Lord, please take it away. And because Romans 8, 28 is true, in effect, I think God said to Paul, look, I could do that, but there's something that I wanna accomplish in you. I'm gonna, I certainly wanna keep a curb on your pride. I don't want you to be puffed up by the, the nature of the revelations you've seen. And I want you to learn the lesson of how my power and strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, I've rushed through this because I want to take the, la the last few minutes we have with number 10. I do not expect all of you to agree with this. Um, many of you won't, and that's okay, but I just want you to wrestle with me through this issue. 
I, I would imagine that my Armenian friends will not resonate with what I'm about to say. As most of you know, I am a Calvinist. Um, Michael is not, and yet we are great buddies. And by choice. Yeah, yeah, by choice. <laughs> He's an Armenian. <laughs> And by God's choice, I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> the good news is we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Stop dividing and separating from one another over that issue, would you please, please? But here's number 10. Another reason why healing doesn't always happen when and how we might prefer is related to the mysterious distinction that I believe Scripture teaches between God's secret sovereign will and His revealed preceptive will. Now, not all Arminians acknowledge this distinction, and I understand why, and they've got, they've got some good responses. They're not persuasive in my opinion, but just hear me out if you would. Let me explain what I'm talking about. What I mean by God's secret or sovereign will, I mean the will of God that is always infallibly accomplished. It never fails to come to pass. But we don't know what it is until after the fact. That's why we call it secret. But I think there's another sense in which the Scripture speaks of God willing, and it's what I call His revealed or preceptive will. Preceptive because it's embedded in the precepts of Scripture, the exhortations, the moral commandments. This will is often unfulfilled. It isn't always accomplished. And we can know what it is because it's given to us in the Bible. I believe it is God's revealed will that all be healed. So I pray for it. But whether or not it is His secret sovereign will, I don't know. Now, let me real quickly, in the time we have, and I don't have much time, I want to try to just give you some text that I think justify this distinction. And I've got probably several dozen that I could do this with, but we don't have time. So for example, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. I think that's His secret sovereign will. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever the heck He wants. That's the Hebrew. I just brought that out. Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's God's sovereign secret will. Next, Isaiah 46, this is God talking. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. That, I think, is His sovereign will. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Now, let me give you some examples of how that sovereign secret will plays out in experience. For example, Paul in Romans 15, verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul didn't know if it was God's ultimate will that he get there. That's why he solicited the saints in Rome to pray for him. 
Acts 18, 21. Before taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. He didn't know if that was God's will. It hadn't been revealed to him. 1 Corinthians 4, 19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, 16, 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Maybe the most explicit statement of this, as you know, is in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now that's a very comprehensive statement. He's not just saying, I don't know today and neither do you whether God wills that I'll go to this city and conduct successful business. It's not just that, it's whether or not you're gonna be alive in the next five seconds and do this or that. In other words, whatever you do, you, you don't know what God's ultimate sovereign purpose is for you unless he's revealed it in scripture. And then it's an expression of his revealed or preceptive will. Now, as I said, I think there's another sense in which God wills and all this pertains to our approach to healing. It's what I call God's revealed will, his moral will, his preceptive will. This is the will of God that can be resisted and isn't always fulfilled. I'm just gonna give you two examples of it in scripture, of the many I could cite. First Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. Now that's a pretty bold way to start a verse. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the expression of God's desire. That's what he wants, that you not fornicate. Is that will always fulfilled? No. Sadly, it is not. It re is resisted. Remember, he's addressing Christians. The will of God in this sense is revealed. It pertains to a moral imperative, but it can be resisted and defied and it may not come to pass because a lot of people, not just non-Christians, tragically, but Christians as well, fornicate. That's what the meaning of sexual immorality is here. One more. First Timothy chapter two, you all know this. This is good and it is pleasing the sight of God our Savior. It says here, who desires, literally, who wills all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Does God will all mankind to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus? Yes. Are they going to? No, I'm, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe that that's actually gonna come to pass. But it's God's revealed will, his expressed open desire that that should happen. So what am I saying? Simply this, I believe that it is God's revealed will that all be healed. That's why I'm praying for you. That's why you ought to pray for one another. Whether or not ultimately you are is something that is secret and sovereign in the counsels of God that we can't know until after the fact. That's why John, for example, in 1 John chapter 5, a very uh, intriguing passage, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, I don't believe that John is saying there 
that you need to use those words before you pray for someone. Well, Lord, if it be your will, heal this person. I think he's simply saying that we can have confidence that if our prayers do align with God's sovereign will, we can be assured that it's going to come to pass as we have asked. So all of this brings me around to this question that I'm asked all the time that divides Christians, unfortunately, and and I don't want it to. Is it permissible that when we pray for the sick, we preface it by saying, Lord, if it be your will, heal my friend of this or that affliction? Some Christians say it's more than permissible, it's mandatory. Others insist on the opposite, and no, 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 don't ever use those words. That, that reflects a weak faith. You're praying without confidence. You know, in other words, isn't saying if it be your will is just simply a way to hedge our bets? It's a way to, to protect us. It's a way out, as it were. It guards us against disappointment. So there's division about whether or not that phrase is used. Now now listen, as best I can tell, nowhere in the New Testament is anybody ever found saying, Lord, if it be your will, heal this person. That exact phraseology I don't think is found anywhere in the New Testament. Now you might think it's justified given some of the texts that I've just given you, but that language is never used in that precise manner. I have not used that language at least in the last 30 years, and I'm determined I will never use it. Why? Is it because I know whether or not it's God's will for somebody to be healed? No. It's precisely because I don't know. In other words, if, let me give you, let me give you two reasons real quickly why I don't use that language, why I would recommend that you not use it. Number one, as I said, because the phrase is nowhere used in the Bible when it comes to healing prayer. I'd like to have some biblical grounding for my language. But secondly, I think it is theologically distracting and emotionally disheartening. And what I mean by that is this. If you say, yes, it is always God's will to heal, that comes across in a very rigid, immovable, infallible way in people's minds. And if they aren't healed, They walk away feeling guilty and condemned and rejected and unworthy. But if you say no to that question, it's not always God's will to heal, then people lose their zeal for prayer. They become passive. They just kind of resign themselves. Well, if it isn't God's will always to heal, I guess I just gotta, I gotta bear my cross. I gotta learn to live with it. I got to acquiesce to my condition and they eventually just stop praying. My point is simply this, wherever you land on this theological issue, and it is a major debate among Christians, I don't think it's pastorally wise or practically helpful to use the language, Lord, we pray if it be your will, would you heal this person? And those are the reasons why I will not say that. I do believe if they want to ask me, Sam, do you, do you believe that God has, has revealed that his desire is for us to be healed? And the answer is yes. But whether or not ultimately you will be is something I don't know and can't predict until after the fact. So what do we do in the meantime? So if you come and say, Sam, it, is it God's will to heal me of, of cancer or psoriatic arthritis or neuropathy or migraine headaches or lower back pain or whatever it may be, I'm going to say, 
I know God's heart, his desire, his compassion is that you be healed. But instead of getting all wrapped up in this debate about trying to decipher God's will, remember this, he's good and he loves you and he is able to heal you, so let's pray. So let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help all of us to avoid the paralysis sometimes that enters into our experience when we, when we get all bent out of shape over this question and what kind of language should we use. Lord, I believe it's your revealed will, the desire of your heart is expressed not only for the salvation of all, but for the healing of all. But Lord, I also submit, as Paul did, if it be your will, I'll come and visit you. If it is your will, I'll travel and do this or that. Lord, guard us both from presumption and skepticism. Guard us against any attitude of entitlement on the one hand or cynicism on the other. Lord, we know this because it's made known in Scripture. We know that you are good. You know, we hear so often people say he's bad to the bone. God is good to the bone, if he had any. But he's good, always will be, always desires and orchestrates that which is best for his children. Romans 8, 28 assures me of that truth. So Lord, let that be the foundation for our prayers. The good news that you are good and that you are great, that you are all powerful. There's no disease that stands against you when you provide the power of the Spirit to bring healing. Lord, may we embrace those two truths. As often times they feel in conflict, may we know that they are both true commit ourselves to live with the mystery and continue to pray for the sick. We thank you in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchokc. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.